And so what I love about Lisa Miller is she's really talking about from the beginning of, of, of raising kids, why are we afraid to talk about this idea of something bigger than yourselves? And, and if you're lucky enough to have a practice of, you know, as a Jewish person where you do holidays and, you know, that's great. She says that coupled with noticing moments that are spiritual, that are divine and commenting on them. Welcome to Purple Honey, a gathering of female voices where we explore how Jewish wisdom and feminine spirituality can bring sweetness to our everyday lives. I am your host, Jody Bayless. We are into the month of Adar, and Adar is the month of joy, where it is truly written in the Talmud that joy increases in this part of the year. And guess what? This year is a leap year. So we get two Adars, double joy. Joy seems like such a large word, and at the same time, something so simple and right under our nose. And I'm wondering, how can we relate with joy? How can we relate to ourselves and to one another and with the physical world in a way that sensitizes us and even primes us to access joy? I am sure many of you may feel the same when I say this. Sometimes joy feels distant and even inaccessible. How do we create the space for joy to allow joy in and to more closely attune to it? Today, I bring these questions to my conversation with Mickey Simon. Mickey Simon is a therapist in Washington, DC, who has worked with women and girls for over 20 years. She is a founding task force member of the Jewish Mindfulness Center of Greater Washington at Addis Israel Congregation, where she offers teachings that bridge mental health and wellness with Jewish ritual. Our conversation had so many beautiful twists and turns. We talked about how Jewish ritual and Jewish time are psychologically minded. We talked about how reactivity and the grasping mind create a narrow sense of self, whereas ritual and sensory experiences and gratitude open things up, bring us into the moment and sensitize us to joy. We talked about how Judaism offers us rituals and practices that can serve as protective factors to depression and anxiety. This was such a nourishing conversation for both Mickey and myself, and I hope it brings as much joy to you as it did for us. So I think I just had um, my first moment of joy for the morning. <laughs> I figured out. I didn't need to call anyone. I figured out my iPhone app. <laughs> um, as a dar, so this podcast series is going to be running over the 60 days of Adar, and we have been gifted. Two of them. Two of them. Yes. So it's like, it's so interesting to think about, you know, it's like the end of the Jewish year. We have this like extra padding. We're given this extra like time slotted in, in this leap year. And, um, and as I've been reading the Talmud, you know, the famous line in the Talmud, um, which is along the lines of um, when Adar comes, we increase joy, or when a, mm -hmm. Adar comes, joy increases. So I got a little curious about joy. Yes. <laughs> and um, and as I'm as we're starting to to um, have conversations, you are a joy enthusiast and, and very interested in joy, is what I'm understanding in, yes. in your work. Yes. And I just love to hear from you. Um, just like, you know, joy feels like at the same time, it feels so large and also, and so large and grand and like a big word. And also it feels like it's something that just might be right there in front of our nose. And I'd love to hear from you. Just what is joy? Oh, well, the way you just frame that is really beautiful. I love the word joy. Um, you know, I feel like people use the word happy all the time. You know, are you happy? Is your child happy? You know, do you love it there? I just want my kids to be happy. And I always say and try to reframe both for myself and for the women I work with and the young adult women I work with. I like to say that, you know, I, it's not a goal of being happy. It's the goal of living a life of meaning and being present for and 
open to seeing the moments of true joy. And, you know, in this moment in time, everyone's talking a lot about mindfulness. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the way you framed it is, is really resonated with me. You know, is it some, it is something that's so big and hard to attain. It feels like in some moments and yet it's there in front of us because I think joy is about that goal of mindfulness. It's to take, you know, yes, it's wonderful to meditate and to sit and to practice being less reactive and more intentional. But the goal of that is to be out in the world and to be in relation with other people and be present and aware enough to see the many moments throughout the day that are joyful mm -hmm. um, and that can bring true joy. So it's like a, a way of living in the world where perhaps we attune more to these maybe micro moments, yes. maybe large moments. Yes. And sometimes they're both, right? Sometimes they're small moments within the day. And sometimes they're really small acts or really small, um, you know, awareness of something very small. And of course, sometimes they're big life events and big moments of transition. It's funny, actually, on my, um, I joke that my, my, um, my phone app moment was a joy, my first joyful moment, but I was, I've been thinking about joy for, for in, in, you know, the coming days of our conversation. And on the drive here, um, I was just sort of looking at all of the, the trees. I was driving through Rock Creek Park, and it's a sunny day, and then there was like shade on the bark, there was light on the bark, and there were all these trees together. And um, I, in my, I felt like, it's not even like I, I felt what we might, um, what the word, like you said, like happy, it's not necessarily like happy. I just felt more sensitized to this special moment. Yes, and I think that's a great description of what joy is. It's a perfect description. And when you read that Talmudic quote, you know, I actually was thinking we can also use the same word when you say, you know, joy increases, that's what happens in Adar. And I always think of, it comes at a perfect time, Adar, and how wonderful that we have two of them this year, because to me, it's also about light increasing. We're coming out of the winter, the darker Jewish months where you're more internal and you're sitting with some of your darker instincts and reactions to things and how beautiful that we're given this month of Adar that's very in tune with the seasons. Mm. And that is a reminder for us that um, there will be more and more and more days of light and there'll be more light and that even in darkness there's always some light um, but there's such an appreciation for the light mm -hmm. um, as we're coming out of days of gray skies here mm -hmm. in DC we've had an unusually gray mm -hmm. kind of six months and I think that those moments of seeing the beautiful snow over the last week when they there was just a dusting and the trees had you know this beautiful snow on it um, and the sky lightened up a little bit, I think that Adar reminds us of that. And I think Judaism is just incredibly psychologically minded. So it's a, a natural link for me um, to really think about, you know, I'm spending a lot of time with many of the women that I work with um, managing the winter months, um, mm -hmm. managing this moment that some people feel a lot of darkness in our country and, uh, you know, in the world right now that yeah. um, is always coming at us. You know, we don't have a break from information. and um, I think that the Jewish life cycle and the Jewish calendar and the Jewish months have such brilliant psychologically minded themes because they're very similar to what people are dealing with psychologically, sort of turning inward in the winter months and light and, mm -hmm. and finding joy. So I love the idea that Judaism can offer us, um, mm -hmm. you know, these months to say, what are some of the themes? What are some of the ways I can um, use the cycle of our calendar <laughs> the lunar calendar to really be in tune with what's going on for me internally and um, what might be really natural, that it would be natural to have some of these Jewish calendar months that are a little bit darker and how wonderful to help pull us out, to have us open our eyes and be more aware of the light and the joy. Yeah, so, <clears throat> so it's like the seasons, um, with the seasons guiding us and there's like this bridge point, it seems. Yes. And so the so the in hearing you talk about how you are, you are supporting in your therapy practice women through these darker months, um, and then the light comes. There there's something um, 
Well, there's something that feels tangible about that, first of all. Um, you know, it's dark and it's light. There's something that you can actually see and feel, I think, for many of us, yes. for most of us. Yes. Um, some of us who suffer from depression, it's often due to the just the darker days. Yes. Um, so there's this there's this tangible um, feel to dark days, dark nights, and and maybe um, going inward that can often feel more enclosed. Um, so what um, I guess two curiosities I have is like how do we bridge from the dark to the light that's my first question or what not how but like what what are some you know when I hear your question one of the things that I'm thinking of is like what are some of I use the language sometimes tools what are sometimes tools and then if if I'm thinking more with my Jewish lens Mm -hmm. I'm thinking rituals so Mm -hmm. sometimes I think in my cognitive behavioral therapy um, I do some insight-oriented therapy and some cognitive behavioral therapy, but with kind of shifting our negative thoughts or our stuck thoughts, um, sometimes I'll use the language, you know, we kind of build a toolbox of strategies to manage some of that worried thinking or some of that negative thinking because both dep- a depressive brain and an anxious brain tend to be very negative. So I'm, I'm kind of going to use the word tools in the context of more of, you know, in a therapeutic relationship. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is I think that Judaism gives us, you know, I'm, I could use the word tools, but I like to use the word rituals because mm-hmm. um, even if I'm working with someone and we never talk about religion or spirituality, um, I'm still bringing in some Jewish rituals. So, for instance, I always like to talk about protective factors. You know, in social science research, we hear all the time about risk factors. What are risk factors? Well, for depression, it might be living in a place that doesn't get a lot of sunshine. You know, what are other risk factors when we're thinking about raising teenage girls? Um, There's a lot of wonderful protective factors, the kind of research that we look at that says, you know, what are things that are gonna mitigate that? What are ways that we can protect against anxiety and depression or in our young adult females, risky behavior um, or unhealthy behavior as we I like to call it unhealthy behavior so um, I love what Judaism has to offer us and so one of the first tools slash rituals that really comes to mind for me um, is just that Judaism has ingrained this idea of gratitude and I think gratitude can be a bridge even when you are in a darker month and you know darker months or uh, uh, you're, you're kind of on stuck in a more anxious or depressive thinking kind of brain. Um, and Judaism, you know, in, in more Orthodox Judaism, <clears throat> commands that we do, uh, say, 100 prayers of gratitude a day. And I love that when you wake up in the morning, you basically are supposed to say a prayer that you're grateful, basically that your soul returned to your body, or that you just are alive and awake with the Modani prayer, which is just such a lovely, beautiful way to start the day. Mm-hmm. And I always, you know, and I use that um, even with my clients, as I said, who aren't Jewish, you know, I might say, you know, when we wake up in the morning, if we grab our phone and the first thing we're doing is getting our mm-hmm. brains and our hearts in a, in a state of um, the opposite of relaxation, the opposite of being present and, and relaxed. What if we woke up and took a deep breath and just had a moment to think, okay, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that <clears throat> I am waking up this morning, that I can go use the bathroom. I love that Judaism has a prayer for being, you know, grateful that your body works, you know, and all of that. And I always say, you know, anyone who's had GI issues at different points of their life will say, well, actually, that makes sense to be grateful for that. And just if you started your day with just the gratitude of that first few, you know, routines that you take in the morning, um, just how differently you might feel as you go out into the world. So Judaism gives us, I think, that real reminder that finding moments of gratitude. And, you know, I talk a lot about what Judaism has to tell us about our relationships with people in our lives. And so when we are in a little bit more of an irritable or stuck place, um, Mm -hmm. you know, Noticing, are you grateful for the people in your house? You know, morning routines in people's houses can be very stressful. And it's very easy to focus on what people didn't do or to notice your language or notice that you're mostly focusing on things that aren't positive. And so it's just a little bit of a reframe. And I think Judaism 
gives us that opportunity to say, to remind us that there are so many ways to try to use gratitude. Mm -hmm. Um, And I always like the example that our prayer, um, when we're in mourning, um, the the Kaddish is not a prayer of grief and loss. There's not a word about death or dying. It is actually a prayer of gratitude. Um, And I think that's really powerful that at people's darkest time in profound grief and loss that um, the our Judaism has the wisdom to say even in those moments you, we, we we come from a place of gratitude and that that can be that's considered a protective factor gratitude so mm-hmm. I really like that as a tool so I think there are different tools that are, are wonderful bridges for us um, mm-hmm. I think I Shabbat is is the ultimate um, bridge um, Mm, there is right. no, a bridge of time. <clears throat> it is a bridge of time. It is a separation of the mundane um, to the sacred. And I think that um, that space for us, creating that space um, to separate things that are mundane, the work week and the hecticness, um, to a space that's more sacred of really being with family. And, you know, Shabbat is so much about, being, it's the original being unplugged. And every everybody is doing research right now about how critical it is for people to be off their screens for a period of time and of course Judaism offers us that wisdom Um, Mm -hmm. it's an ancient wisdom Um, that's interesting how important it is yeah and it's interesting how technology (coughs) is presenting this yes this question of um, creating space for joy that's it's it's uh, the presence of technology because it's there all the time like you said it can be there as we get out of bed and and, and into our sleep the yes. following evening. Um, so, um, right. So, uh, so something like Shabbat where, where it's this, there's this separation, this act of separation. And then the, from that, yes. um, that inundation, like just almost naturally what's going to pull in is family time or a meal time. It's, yes. It's the simple things. It's, yeah, and it's being present with each other. Right, and so so many, you know, there's been research for years about how family dinner is a protective factor, right? Um, and in today's mm-hmm. day and age, that can be hard for some people to do, and sometimes that's very quick. And it's just the idea of being present with each other, yeah. and just listening, and seeing each other, right? Um, and ultimately, what another piece of joy is feeling deep connection to another soul right Mm -hmm. and so when you at your soul level feel seen and heard and understood which is most people's desire (laughs) what people are thriving for Mm -hmm. you know that happens when you again create the space for it you have to create the space for it and Judaism gives us a reminder Mm -hmm. of lots of ways to do that Mm -hmm. lots of ways to do that so in so in gratitude in relationships this use in the the sacred time of Shabbat. So all of these, um, all of these can be like that bridge. And I, I remember hearing a therapist once saying, um, you know, t- when you're in your lower brain, the lizard brain, the, the fight or fourth, I believe the fight or flight sort of lives as well. Right. Um, you need that bridge. I think she referred to it as a staircase mm-hmm. um, to get to the higher brain. Yes. She was talking to children. Yes. <laughs> and, and but I thought that was a very um, good visual. Yes. Um, um, and I might even use the language, um, you know, that we spend a lot of time being very reactive, right? Mm-hmm. And that when we move through the world and we notice that we're just reactive to a lot of situations and people and we're just getting through, then we're not living intentionally. So people talk all the time about live with intention or you go to a yoga class and they want you to have an intention at the beginning. But I would say that Judaism offers us lots of rituals and ideas and tools for that. And in therapy, I spend a lot of time helping people figure out what are ways that they can be less reactive and more intentional. Mm-hmm. And that is about creating that staircase, that um, that mm-hmm. space. You know, sometimes I'll encourage people to use breath, you know, as you're moving up that staircase to mm-hmm. be less reactive, to be more intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when you give yourself moments of time to decompress, to just be, then you can spend some time about how you want to be intentional. 
Because if you're just moving all the time and you're not slowing down, then you are really moving through the world reacting and you're reactive. And I think most people can access joy, honestly, if they're intentional, if they decide this is how I want to be at work. This is how I want to be in relationship with my mm-hmm. mother, partner, child, you know, and mm-hmm. really move forward with intention. There's great joy in feeling um, that, wow, I, in that moment, was my best self. I felt very, very positive and joyful about that connection, that interaction, my my ability to handle something that came my way. Mm-hmm. I feel joyful, even if it wasn't something great that happened, but I'm proud of how I handled that. Mm-hmm. And that joyful sense of, wow, I... I manage something, even when it's really tricky and challenging. I think that's a, a form of joy also because, yeah. you know, we, we all are striving to be our better selves, to be our best selves, which we can't be in every moment. So it's, it's in addition to connection with each other, it's really this connection to our deepest selves. Yes. Our, our, um, and, and staying connected um, can, can bring, as you said, you're, you're sort of living, you're acting in alignment with your intention. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently heard a talk um, by Tara Brock about the relationship between attention, attention and intention, mm-hmm. and how they sort of cycle in the same universe. Where um, I can't say the exact quote because I'll probably botch it, but it was just um, how if you have an intention, like what's First, she helps guide in exploring what's your deepest intention because they're sort of like the ego level intention. Yes. But then, like, let's you know, going deeper down into that, um, and then that alone springs up how you pay attention in the world. Yes, and what you're paying attention to, and vice versa. The other way can happen too if yes. you're, if you're, um, you know, from our last episode um, in Shvat, I paid deep attention to the trees for six weeks. And something shifted. I can't describe what, but it sort of made that access to the deeper intention seem just clear, more clear. So that it does seem like there's this relationship between yes. what you pay attention to and what your intention is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that, you know, when you think about an anxious or depressed brain, you, your attention is very much on your thoughts. And as a therapist, I spend a lot of time with people helping them recognize your thoughts are just your thoughts are not who you are. And also how to not grip at thoughts and get stuck when your thoughts just roll over again and again and again. And they keep you in a very, very narrow place. And they don't allow you to necessarily see someone else's perspective. Or they don't allow you to be kind to yourself because sometimes the stuck thoughts are very self-critical. And they also keep your story very narrow about something that happened in the past, something that's going to happen. And so, you know, I like to talk about Jewish people being people of the book, and we really are people who like to talk about, you know, we are very much aware of our brains and our thoughts. And that can be wonderful, but it also is the reason that a lot of Jewish people experience, you know, have always been passionate about understanding mental health. And that's the reason a lot of Jewish people experience anxiety. Um, and you know can be susceptible to depression because I think it's very easy to pay attention to your thoughts and one of the beautiful things about mindfulness whether it's from a Jewish lens or you know Tara Brock's version is not from a Jewish lens but um, they're all they all have the same goal which Mm -hmm. is for you to be able to um, attend without gripping at things for you to pay attention um, not just to your thoughts but to have the presence of being with the world around you and I always like to start um, from a place of helping people do that using their senses so mm-hmm. you know I will talk to people about how in a if you're really trying and and you can't sit for a meditation let's say the idea of that you know is very challenging I love a mindful walk you know and I'll mm-hmm. help someone really understand that your goal to not only focus on your thoughts, you can practice through a mindful walk where you start with you know, your sense of smell and really have this deep awareness of what am I smelling as I'm on this walk and whether it's the pine or you know, whatever you're smelling as you're on your trail walk. And then 
using your sight and really labeling and noticing very deeply the bark on the tree and the snow on the rocks in the creek and really naming it and spending some time with sight. And then of course you move to hearing and this, all the sounds you're hearing and you kind of, you're, you really heighten your awareness and then you know touch the feel of the air on your skin. And I really find that for a lot of people that practice can shift um, their understanding about what it means to be so stuck on their thoughts. Mm-hmm. You know, recognizing that using their other senses can be a really great way to do that, mm-hmm. to start to access that. Mm-hmm. Um, Over a great entry point. It can be a great entry point. Um, but I think a lot of us pay very close attention to the story we believe to be true. And, you know, I, I also in my therapy say that, you know, one of my themes that I talk to most people about, you know, I have a picture of an ampersand sign and I say to people all the time with their stories, you know, and what else is true? Whether it's a story, you know, what keeps people, I think, stuck, um, whether it's an anxious brain or depressed brain is either a story from the past that they've gripped at and held on to so tightly or the what ifs and worry about the future and helping someone expand their stories and just that what else is true can be incredibly helpful in also noticing how our attention shifts again so that we can move towards a different intention of who we want to be and what we want to put out in the world. Mm -hmm. Because it's almost like the story that we're telling ourselves is keeping something in us alive. Yes. That we feel perhaps we we may have needed at some point in our lives. Yes. Yes. There's lots of reasons people hold on to a story, mm-hmm. um, and and you can't try to just get rid of somebody's story because mm-hmm. it serves a very mm-hmm. important purpose. But mm-hmm. there's something about being able to hold lots of different ideas at once um, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. allows you to expand your story. So nobody's. I'm never trying to have someone rewrite a story and not have it be true. I just want them to be able to hold their story and then be able to hold other pieces that might be very, you know, discordant with the story they tell. It might feel very opposite. Um, And I think that happens a lot in relationship. You know, when people feel that they have a very clear story of another person or what someone has done. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it can be really helpful. Um, And when we're stuck in that way, it takes up a lot of our energy and our brain space and we don't have as much room for joy. Mm-hmm. You know, I keep mm-hmm. coming back to that joy to me also has a quality of a, a lightness of being, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think initially when people start thinking about things like intention and a mindfulness, <clears throat> they misunderstand that, oh, I wish I could be carefree. That's what, you know, I wish I didn't care so much about these things. They feel like this sort of non-judgmental, things will be what they will be, they, they misunderstand when that's not the goal. <clears throat> the goal is to just not have judgment about what you're thinking or feeling and or even your reaction to things sometimes, but to not hold on to that so tightly, to so make room. It's the reaction, it's the grasping. Yes. Easing that sort yes. of frees up our energy. Yes. And it also feels like... Um, um, a few a few things I'm remembering. So when you were describing the the walking meditation, which sounds which sounds lovely. I um, one thing I've started doing is um, just taking a, a a 15 minute walk break, just like you know, um, just but several times through the day, you know, like which is so smart as a writer and a yes. Yeah, it's a dig- mm-hmm. oh, a mode of digestion, yes. <laughs> physically yes. and emotionally. Yeah. Um, and so what you were saying with the the sight, the the sight, the smells, all of those, um, I think it was maybe a a, a, a a Buddhist teacher talking about how like through sound, behind the sound is awareness, and that's Buddhist language. Mm-hmm. So awareness is that that Buddhist language, but it's that I think what you were saying, just that unencumbered lightning. It's that in, in 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 it's a way in to that lightning. Yes, um, and using a walk or the, the senses. And I love that you, you know, take time to go for a walk because one of the things I always say too is that we have to get out. You know, what as I like my little saying that oh, you know, Jews are people of the book. They're always in their heads. I always then 
continue that by saying, and we have to practice getting out of our heads and into our bodies. Mm -hmm. And getting into our bodies, Judaism again offers us some beautiful, beautiful rituals. So here you are, you know, you're doing work and you're in your head and by moving and getting up and just actually physically moving, you're in your body. And that does take you out of your head. Because I think when we're too in our head, we aren't aware enough to see the joy, right? And I, I love the Jewish ritual of mikvah, mm. which I know you spoke about in your last podcast. Um, and I'm sure that Naomi shared um, this beautiful teaching that she talks about a, a, as how your body is a ritual object. Mm. Um, and I love that Judaism offers us these embodied practices that allow us to get out of our head and into our bodies because I think that's a way to also experience joy. Mm-hmm. All right, um, aside from mikvah, because we are both, we're both mikvah guides in training, <laughs> yes. um, are there other um, body-based Jewish rituals or Jewish-inspired rituals that you find or have been drawn to over the years? You know, I really love the Rosh Chodesh ritual. So as here we are, this is what your podcast does and talks about each new month. And um, <clears throat> there's a wonderful young woman named Sarah Waxman who started this amazing program called At The Well. I don't know if you've talked about it before on your podcast. Mm-hmm. You have. Um, and she really has tried to revive this Jewish women's ritual mm-hmm. of monthly coming together and learning about women's learning about the theme of the month but also really celebrating women understanding and knowing their bodies Mm -hmm. um but i would say one of the things i personally really love about the idea of what you're doing identifying each month celebrating rosh chodesh what i love about it is that there is a philosophy about rosh chodesh that it's um what they call a yom kippur katan that at every single new month of the year you have an opportunity to really do what you did at Yom Kippur. Mm. And that um, in some traditional cultures, women actually fast on the first day of the new moon with the same exact idea of saying, let me take a moment and create a bridge, create a space between last month and this new month. Mm. And let me take some time to say, okay, how did I do with my intentions from last month? Just as we do at Yom Kippur. Did I fall short? But again, that really important piece that's very important also in mindfulness without judgment, right? So yes, I'm a little bit in my thoughts in my head, but I'm also fasting because, you know, I'm trying not to be as focused on food and I'm going to just feel my body. I'm going to be really in touch with my body and I'm going to be very in touch with how did I do with my intentions from last month? And I'm going to give myself an opportunity to reset again this month and, and say, what is my intention? And I think it's a beautiful idea that Judaism has built in. And interestingly, particularly a Jewish women's ritual, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be, but Rosh Chodesh happens to be because it's so in tune with our cycles. Um, I love how beautiful that is, that we're given an opportunity to do that every month. Mm-hmm. And so just that idea really speaks to me and feels incredibly meaningful. I love hearing you say um, that a Yom Kippur Katan. I don't know if I've, I don't know if I've heard Rosh Chodesh referred to in this way, and it just it, it brings like a whole other feeling for me um, to um, a whole other um, gravity in a good way, though. Um, mm-hmm. Where Yom Kippur of the year is like whoa, yes, <laughs> like yes, not in such. Um, uh, it, it's it's not as heavy. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's not as heavy. It feels right, but to your point, it's just that other. It's like that's that technology of like this is a bridge. <laughs> this yes. is another bridge for you. Um, it's almost like I wanna, I you know I love I love the innovative embodied practice and um, fasting is um, just I, mean, I uh, I'm a food person so like yeah that, <laughs> that's like such a connection but I almost like want to wear white or something you know or yes. em- embody it in in another way in right that way yeah um, I'm sure many women have beautiful ways that they that they practice and we should probably start like a a community conversation about different ways. I love the idea of wearing white. That's so beautiful. That just it reminds me of summer camp Shabbats. People always wear white. Oh and yes. I, and I really <laughs> I like that visual because it really is a separation. Yeah. To me, it was it's like a visual separation of lightness and that space that you're creating. 
Yeah. You know, I just, there was something always so beautiful about everybody lining up, you know, leaving their cabins in their little white get-ups so that, you know, it just had a feeling that it was, it was a separation, you know, from the rest of your week in such a beautiful way. And there was a heightened level of presence with each other, of joy, um, and I think that, you know, I, I came back to Shabbat, but I think it's true actually about all of the Jewish holidays. Mm-hmm. I think that the cycle of the Jewish holidays are really so much about joy. And I think, you know, as you brought it up, food is another space and place that I think Judaism offers mm-hmm. some true joy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's so many Jewish prayers. And I always, you know, I like mm-hmm. to talk about the fact that regardless of how much you practice um, maybe you aren't someone who says the prayer before you eat. I personally don't have mm-hmm. a practice of doing that except on Shabbat. But I love the intention of it. So mm-hmm. um, it does have you stop and create a little bit of space. And I love I love that. One of um, the psychologists that I really like from Boulder, I'm from Colorado, there's a father-son team um, up in Boulder, and they have this philosophy about parenting that's very, very much about, like, creating from the very, very beginning, we're all in this together. So, of course, in this moment, everyone is talking about, oh, how, how do we raise adults and what have we, where have we gone wrong? And, you know, I have a lot of opinions also about you want your child not to be happy. That's not your goal. You're, you want your child to be a wonderful problem solver. That's your job. You want your, your child to be a wonderful problem solver and that they can go out in the world and be open to and find moments of joy, right? Mm-hmm. But ultimately you have to be able to tolerate your child's distress and know that challenge and distress build resilience and that it's not your job to fix it. And so we've particularly, I think on the East Coast, there's a lot of parents, you know, that I see, I see a lot of extremely competent 20 something year olds who don't have any belief that they can handle anything because their parents couldn't handle them being in distress. And why I bring that up is because, you know, even before we had this trend, that's happening in this moment, there's this psychologist back in Boulder, he and his son have been, you know, talking about parenting for the last 50 years, and they talk a lot about just community, and I love their example about a mealtime. You know, they it seems almost funny, but the way they talk about it is, you know, so you sit around on a Sunday night and you talk about how the week's gonna go, and maybe the mom or dad, or, you know, the mom, whoever the parents are, the mom and the mom say, I'll go to the grocery store tomorrow because I can drive. And you know, that sounds kind of funny, but you're saying to a kid, okay, so then your job is something you can do. And sort of this expectation instead of waiting on our kids and having everybody see that they have a role and being really grateful for the person who went to the grocery store, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then I take it to the next level that Judaism offers Mm -hmm. us, you know, a prayer over the fruit of the vine. If I took a moment to think about those grapes I'm about to eat and who actually picked them or who actually then drove them to a grocery store or who then in my family went shopping and actually is preparing the meal. Just that idea of food can be so joyful. And I think in our culture, there's potential for it to be the enemy because we have Mm -hmm. so much conversation about food. Um, And I think Judaism has something really beautiful to teach us about um, thinking about where food came from and Mm -hmm. taking a moment to really be aware of what's in front of me and you know as I said even just my family member who helped put it there mm-hmm. um, and the joy of preparing it when kids get involved in making food and I think because we have holidays that are so focused on food um, Judaism gives us an opportunity to be to counteract some of our cultural messages about food and hopefully have it be a more positive experience of creating food together feeding people feeding people who are hungry you know you're commanded on Passover to bring the stranger to your table and to invite anybody you know mm-hmm. to be part of it yeah. um, and so I think it gives us an opportunity to find joy in some in 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 rituals of eating our daily rituals yeah and to what you were and I'm hearing you say just that there's so much there's the interpersonal piece around the food and the preparation and then it ripples out yes. to the gratitude of uh, from the person that grew it to um which sort of then sensitizes there we go with sensitize sensitizing again yes. but sensitizing to people who may not have enough or potentially our food systems that might 
um, have deficiencies so that the food's not getting to people or whatever. So it's just, it seems It's an awareness. An awareness that maybe builds on itself. Yes, and another protective factor when we talk about social science research is for people to do things outside of themselves. And so I think that that kind of awareness and building that in early on as you're talking as a family early on, those kinds of conversations, they are protective factors in, um, and it's deeply Jewish, you know? Mm-hmm. Judaism is very much about who came before you. You know, when I think of the beautiful, you know, I was thinking about other ways that Judaism is so psychologically minded about moments of transition. And for some people, you know, how many people do you hear say, oh, I'm not good at change, I don't like change. And yet, life is about lots of moments of transition. And Judaism offers us so many beautiful rituals for transition at every point and every time. And I think about the beautiful transition um, of bar and bat mitzvahs. That, you know, it's the ultimate transition from your childhood self to your young adult self. And I love that a big piece of it is very much the the mindset that, you know, you're continuing a tradition that came so long before you, right? Yeah. And um, it's very much about, you know, you are not the only person in the world to have a bar bat mitzvah, but how beautiful to have this long history and this long tradition and this, you know, roadmap of the Torah that's here to help you figure out how do I navigate all these changes in my body, in my mind, mm-hmm. and I'm now responsible for my community. And I just think it's so incredibly psychologically minded because at every moment of transition, you're wondering, who am I? You know, when I see women in my mm. practice of mm. all ages and stages, and I think there's, it's such a gift and a privilege for me to be on a journey with people when, during a time of transition, you're really open to saying, who am I? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I love that Michelle Obama's book, I mm. just read it, you know, Becoming Michelle Obama, and I love how she talks about how um, you know, we're giving kids the wrong message. What do you want to be when you grow up? Like, it's a constant process. Yeah. And I think in moments of transition, we are open to asking ourselves, who am I? And how beautiful that Judaism gives us so many moments. Like, I was giving the example of a bar bat mitzvah, but, you know, so many moments of mm-hmm. here is um, a, a beautiful tradition and there's so much history. And you know, another protective factor is people who know their history, mm-hmm. their family history, yeah. tend to have lower rates of anxiety and depression. Like knowing your history, and, um, that's deeply Jewish to yeah. talk so much about where you come from, where your grandparents came from, your family story. So to what you were saying, the, the bar about mitzvah is that unfold, that lineage unfolding yes. and it's then reaching you and re- moving through you onto whoever the future of your family is and um also food as you were talking about earlier um food is oh this was my bubby's soup exactly (laughs) so there's also that connection there yes and so you know when people go through transitions and they're asking who am i it can feel very lonely do people see me and understand me Mm -hmm. and that that Mm -hmm. you know desire to feel you know figure out who you are who you want to be um there's something incredibly grounding and supportive about having that behind you, right? That tradition, that family, that story, knowing kind of who you are is yeah. very powerful. And um, I think before we had this conversation, we are we talked about how, I think you mentioned that, you know, the concept of happiness sort of comes with a storyline. Mm-hmm. And I'm just sort of thinking about that as when, when the question comes up in a transition, who am I? the storyline or we were talking earlier about beliefs or the grasping onto those those can just that all sort of get stirred up in transition yes and um so then it seems like the these um in the jewish context um you know eating jewishly <laughs> um bar mitzvahing jewishly or like you know transitioning in lifetimes jewishly um that that um uh i don't know it it maybe helps us just kind of go through the doorway and say, I don't know. <laughs> yes. But I'm going to just walk through supported. Yes. And I I I can't always know and I don't really have control, you know, over so much of what will be. But there's something about there's a piece of letting go. There's a piece of letting go. Um I um I have to I loved 
Michelle Obama's book. I'm sure many people listening have read. I I loved. Um, I loved her moment of being in the law firm, mm-hmm. and just growing growing up the way she grew up, working so hard and getting to this point. And then meeting Barack Obama, who was this this universal questioner, yes. <laughs> and um, his whole way of being was was taking in all the threads of thinking, and he he didn't know. Yes. Uh, and I, I and that how that influenced her next career, yes. um, life. It it was a beautiful thing to to read. Yes, absolutely. And empowering. It just there was so much power in it. Yes. Yes. And being open, you know, I think sometimes that, that gripping that we have and, you know, when we, when we move forward in a moment of transition from a place of fear or we parent from a place of fear or we, you know, whenever we come from a place of fear, we are limited and we aren't open to joy. And when you have another person in your life who says, I know this is new for you, or you have a moment of transition. It may not even be another person. When you know, for your that visual of kind of going through that door and it being an unknown, when you can walk through that door and imagine possibility instead of fear, or you find ways to quiet your fear, mm-hmm. um, and you know that fear is very real and natural, and you know the anxiety is everybody experiences anxiety. So finding ways to quiet it and breathe through it, and you can walk through with that idea of possibility, something, such a different way of looking at something, you, you just are going to be able to access joy. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, the opposite of, 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 you know, what made me think of that is, you know, had, had Michelle been totally afraid of that way of being, right? Mm-hmm. She would have been cut off to it mm-hmm. instead of the possibility of a new style and way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very natural and protective to come from a place of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that in our world and with so many stories and information coming at us, um, another fabulous um, Jewish psychologist, um, Wendy Mogul, talks a lot about that. She um, wrote The Blessing of a Skin Knee, mm-hmm. and then um, I remember hearing her talk, gosh, at the beginning of my career up in Baltimore, so 20-some years ago, I was working in East Baltimore in community mental health, and I went to see her, and I remember, you know, I was working in the neighborhood where the wire took place. And I remember her saying, she knew that there were several people from our clinic there as well, and she said, you know, we do not live in a scary world, and we have to stop acting like our kids can't be out on the street. And she was even saying that in neighborhoods, you know, she was just saying, we have to stop parenting by fear. And um, that's always stayed with me. And I say that because I think that fear is something that cuts off your bridge to joy. Mm. Um, Because when you quiet it, you're just open to experiences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just taking that in. And it's all, and so it, and it feels like, um, let me check our time too. Um, so it feels like, I mean, joy is, um, you know, it, it feels like in a good way, like it, like not a, like elusive, like, <laughs> yes. and, and that we, can join it we can prime ourselves where um we can relax into ways of being um so that we can join be more of a partner with it um because it's you know again we're so like you said we're so in our heads that it you know and is it it's like is joy an emotion is it this is that it just again it just feels to the to the point of a dar yes um a dar seems like one of the themes is about what's hidden yes and so um uh and actually I think I was reading somewhere that now we have two Adars this year and that there's almost a hidden there's like a hidden Purim happening in the first Adar in this coming month that we're at the threshold um and that but it's just more of an internal Purim Mm. um so I don't know. All of that seems to maybe maybe um, resonate on the same wavelength of of joy. Yes, and I like the idea that something that just kind of came to my mind when you said the first one's maybe a little bit more internal. I guess I kind of was thinking a little bit about you know when we talk about being kind of 
open and loving and joyful in our relationships that you have to kind of start with yourself of not being judgmental, not being, you know, being open to feeling joy internally um, so that you can see it out in the world, you know, within your own body and your own skin. Um, I think a little bit of another psychologist that I love, Esther Perel. Um, she's also a Jewish psychologist. I don't think it's a surprise that there are so many Jews in the mental health field. Um, she talks a lot, actually, specifically about uh, long-term marriages. That's one of the things she speaks a lot about. And one of her biggest takeaways is that, you know, over time, you're not looking for the other person to provide you with joy and a this life of meaning and desire, but that you have to actually find that within yourself. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, it's not what does that other person do to bring me joy, to make me feel desirable, to keep this spark going on for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. It's how do I ignite my own desire and joy and then I find it in this relationship. Mm -hmm. And so there's something about what you just said that really is really interesting um, and a powerful idea that you kind of have an internal perm um, that sometimes you do have to start with yourself and then infuse that into everything that's in your life infuse what comes from that yes mm -hmm. yes and you know earlier when you were asking me a little bit about like what are some of the rituals or what are some of the Jewish traditions that you know that speak to me or that that you know are that I use um, and I, I wanted to mention that probably the most common one for me is I'm a big fan of saying the Shehechianu because um, I really think it is the most beautiful, wonderful prayer, which I, you know, I describe it whenever I say it in case there's people who are not familiar with it, um, but everyone in my family knows it's coming whenever we're together, you know, um, it, you know, it's really a prayer that says, I am so grateful for this moment right here in front of me. For the people who are with me and everyone really takes a moment and makes eye contact and is basically I see you and I'm here with you and I'm so grateful that we all arrived at this moment right here and now yeah. and then as a family as a group of friends whatever we do a Shehechianu and that to me is a moment of pure and true joy because it is a state of being of I am so present and so aware how lucky I am that these people in front of me are here with me now and in this moment. I love it. Um, and it's even in the, um, in the words, and I'll have to like follow up with a rabbinic, somebody to, um, somebody to, who knows the roots of the words. Cause um, but even in the saying of the Shechianu, Shechianu, Vakimanu, Vahigianu, it's like this communal, it's like you're, you just keep going deeper and deeper yes. into that moment. Yes. Um, it's just like audibly, you get that Yes, sense. you feel it. You feel it. From the words and the cadence, I totally agree. There's something that is a very embodied prayer. More than, and for someone who doesn't say a lot of, you know, prayers other than singing prayers at services. I don't do a lot of praying of Hebrew words, but the Shehechianu does. And there's something, in, I'm so glad you said that, there's something embodied about that prayer. Yes, yes. I really feel that, like, true, pure joy. So, to me, that's, that, it's a moment, you know. Yes. In closing, could you share a very special um, moment in your life through ritual that you shared in our conversation and you know as we were talking about um, walking through times of our lives and our children's lives you shared about your daughter's bat mitzvah experience um, and um, I uh, my daughter's seven and, and it's very much in my radar of wanting to just start creating space for joy yes. <laughs> but starting to create space for um, um, making it as authentically her and to our the uh, authentically our family and authentically special, um, where there's all of this, you know, there's a lot of what feels like pressures around the event. Yes, there's that duality, and what you shared was beautiful. So I was sharing that um, before. Actually, I have three daughters, and before um, each of their bat mitzvahs, we um, the day before we had a beautiful ceremony at the mikvah so um, all the women in our family came to the mikvah aunts special friends who were known as aunts the, her grandmothers 
um, and all of um, she has a lot of all the biological aunts at, um, and um, sisters came and female cousins and um, my daughter um, was wore a swimsuit because we all came into the mikvah with her and we created a ceremony that was really beautiful and um, mikvah ceremonies which I think you learned about last podcast you know they have three parts and so there are three immersions so there was a prayer um, just sort of about her childhood self and then what she was about to embark on and even spoke of some of her fears before she was going to be on the beam of the next day and she really we all could see her go under the water after that prayer and shake off all her worries and fears and then a prayer of sort of her responsibility of no longer necessarily being continuing to always be a student but also moving into a role of having a responsibility for her community and really saying this idea of tikkun olam what are some of my strengths that I can bring out into the world to start thinking about ways I want to make my immediate community and eventually this world a, a, a better place and um, as part of the ceremony the grandmothers read the prayers about our Jewish matriarchs um, that they had read at her baby naming uh, 13 years before those same prayers um, and we then all together sang the Shehechianu and it was just so beautiful and I think that all of my girls would say that was one of the most, if not the most meaningful part of their bat mitzvah weekend. Um, and particularly my middle daughter, who at the time was a bit anxious um, and um, her sisters teased her, you know, had kind of a cracking kind of voice. And so she was nervous about being on the bima. And I just have such a memory of her after that second immersion with shaking out uh, Naomi so brilliantly, who had been also her teacher and tutor, knew this, told her to really stay under there and shake out any of those nerves. and. It made a difference. It made a difference that next day on the Bima seeing her up there. And I feel like it was 100% because she was went into that mikvah with this beautiful ceremony. And she had all of the women in our family who have continued to love and help raise her. Um, and she felt buoyed by the water, by the Jewish tradition, and by all the women in the family um, being there with her. I think she really felt that up on the Bima. And you could, you could tell. It made a difference. So it was a really, really powerful and very important um, part of all the girls' comments of us. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for your time. You're so welcome. And now for some sweet notes. Sweet note one. Judaism is psychologically minded. Whether it's unplugging on Shabbat or opening to gratitude with blessings, like Mickey's favorite, the Shehechianu, or celebrating the life event of the bar or bat mitzvah, which communally marks and celebrates the end of childhood, or the month of Adar itself, which reminds us joy is increasing right at the same time that light is increasing. These rituals and time markers serve as a bridge in times of change, which perhaps allow us to remain open as we become. Jewish rituals and tools that honor our becoming allow us access to joy. Sweet note two, body-based rituals engage our senses like the experience of Havdalah to fasting on holidays, to marking the new month. Mickey and I talked about wearing white as a, a fun, in, innovative, and connective way to celebrate Rosh Chodesh, the new moon. I think I'm gonna try that. These body-based rituals can ease our mind, get us out of our head, and allow space for joy. Sweet note three, Jewish ritual can be a bridge supporting our mental health and wellness. Mickey walked us through protective factors that may mitigate anxiety and depression, like connection to others and having the feeling that we're deeply being seen. Gratitude, being connected to our lineage, experiencing something larger than ourselves, and working for social justice. We can find all of these in Jewish ritual. Sweet note four, I had to add one about food. Food is my thing. Jewish food ritual can reframe our connection to food. By cooking together, blessing our food and those that helped bring it to the table, by ensuring all have enough to eat, by using food as ritual to tell our communal freedom story, and by connecting to our bubbies by making their challah recipe. 
All this breaks down the social constructs around what our relationship to food should be and gives us the space to eat mindfully and joyfully. Sweet note five, raising our children to be problem solvers allows them more access to joy. Being a parent, I had to add this one because I am really marinating on this and sitting with it. It feels important. In the next episode, we further explore creating space for joy and talk about the ritual of mezuzah. No, I'm not interviewing Marie Kondo. I'll be talking to two women who innovate ritual around the mezuzah, and they'll share with us their perspective on connecting deeply to this ritual and what it means to embody the mezuzah. If Purple Honey is bringing some sweetness to your month, and dare I say bringing in some joy, please share with a friend, a family member, a neighbor, or someone in your community. If you'd like to send me a note, my email is jody at redlentilconsulting.com. With so much gratitude to Mickey Simon for her time and conversation, and to Ethan Bayless, Purple Honey sound engineer, co-producer, and composer. Until then, I am Jody Bayless, and this is Purple Honey. 